Hi, I'm Anthony Fury, and welcome to the first episode of Full Comment, Postmedia's newest podcast. We're going to be bringing you new shows every week where we talk to fascinating guests and ask tough questions about politics, news, culture, the pandemic, and so much more. Like today's episode, where we have a great discussion with Selena Cesar Chavan. In 2019, she had a falling out with Justin Trudeau and quit his Liberal caucus in a very public way. So remember to keep watching for new episodes, and if you like us, tell your friends to subscribe. Okay, let's get started. I'm really excited about our first guest because of the breadth of scope of her story, a story, well, that is her personal story, it's very unique to her, but I, I think it also touches upon a number of issues that, that society, that Canada, that we've been discussing the past couple of years. Some of them are hot-button issues, sometimes uncomfortable conversations about gender, about race, about honesty in politics, and well, so much more. And now for those of you listening in Canada, when you hear me sort of list off those phrases, you might think that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is the rightful champion of those issues. Or perhaps you think he is a bit of a hypocrite. Well, I'm curious to hear what our guest Selena Cesar Chavan has to say about that. Selena is a businesswoman, an entrepreneur, and was a Liberal MP from 2015 to 2019. She's also now an author with a recently released book out titled Can You Hear Me Now? Hey, Selena, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conversation, and, and I think... Uh, to get us started, the first kind of thing that came to mind, you've got this new book out and, and congratulations on it. And I was really wondering about the title, Can You Hear Me Now? And, and I wanted to ask you what's behind that title. Like, who, who is the you in that title, Can You Hear Me Now? And, <laughs> and, and I guess also, you know, is it saying that people weren't listening to you before and they should have been? Was it that your voice was not, you know, as loud as it should have been? Un unpack the title for me and, and, and what went into that. Yeah, so I'll unpack the title in reverse order of the book because I think people most recognize me for my role in politics. So when I say, can you hear me now, that is really directed to you know, the, the prime minister, the, uh, I think politics in general. I mean, I was talking about race and racism in 2018. You know, you fast forward at, to 2020 and everybody's talking about it. I think that the capacity for our government during that time to show their mettle, to stand up for their budget, to actually speak about racism in a way that wasn't performative, to speak about equity in a way that wasn't performative, they could have done it then. And now, you know, the book is released. It is serendipitous that it's released, you know, post-2020. And the question is, can you hear me now? He, now? Now the whole world is talking about something that you should have been able to be to take some leadership on. But I think broader than just the political lens, this book is about everyone who has been silenced, who uh, speaks up in whispers and is afraid that people are not going to receive their message in a way that's impactful. And for people that are often marginalized and pushed aside, uh, you know, that that universal you is a nod to them to say, I feel your pain. I see your hurts. I've experienced them. And now I'm putting them on the pages of the book. Can you hear? Can you hear me now? So you say it, it's universal. I mean, I know you're particularly interested. Uh, you talk about is issues related to race, uh, women's issues. But I think I could take what you said there about, you know, people feeling that their voice isn't being heard and so forth. And there's probably a whole lot of people who, who for yes. a whole variety of different reasons, say, no, that's me. That's me. Yes. Yes. Yeah, for sure. You know, right now I am I'm a senior advisor of equity, diversity and inclusion at Queen's University. 
And to understand, you know, the scope within an institution like Queens, you hear students that are struggling, you hear, uh, you know, staff members, faculty, parents, uh, especially during a pandemic, you get a whole scope of individuals across the age continuum, all kinds of backgrounds that are just, they just want to be heard. And I think when you're when we're looking at a government or our democracy to actually hear people to bring that equity to bear, in fact, all of our institutions, it's it's important that we start listening and listening from a perspective of empathy and understanding and respect. I'm really happy to speak with you in particular, Selena, because you and I, I'm much more conservative minded. Uh, you're obviously you were a liberal MP, and I don't know if you consider yourself more a bit on, on the left end of the liberal spectrum. Uh, I, I won't, of course, speak for you on that. But, you know, and here we are talking and I'm looking forward to talking through some issues as well. But when, when you say people coming to you and, and talking about, you know, being heard and their voices and so forth, I mean, are, 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 are people hearing each other? more yeah. right now are people talking to each other more right now or are they talking to each other less now you know those those opinion polls we heard from a couple of years ago i would never have a hillary supporter over for dinner i would never have a trump supporter over for dinner you know that that kind of stuff yeah that's a very good question i you know what i i'm hoping that the pandemic has given people a perspective of not taking that ability to have people over for dinner for granted, <laughs> right? So, so we're living in a global pandemic. We're we're now cut up, for, cut off from everybody. We are now forced to put down those fences that we had up before against our neighbors and talk to them because they might be the only people we're going to be talking to for a while, right? You know, the little the backyard over the fence conversations where you you have to know people. So, I'm hoping I'm I'm by nature, a very pessimistic person, but I'm hoping that through these challenges of 2020, 2021, that we start to have those more genuine conversations. We now have the former president of the United States out of government. He was driving a lot of that conversation, I think. Um, and I'm not just putting the blame on him, but you know, when you have someone in the highest seat of power and, and, kind of feeds or fans the flame of that polarization, people tend to follow suit. And I'm, I'm certainly hoping that a number of different factors play into the fact that people start to, you know, just be a little bit kinder to each other. It might sound simple, but I really think that that is the first step in creating equity in our world. All right, let, let's go back a bit and talk a bit more about your story here and some of the stuff going on in the book. As you said, your experiences as a liberal MP those four years are sort of the the time you're most kind of publicly known for. Uh, before that, you were, you were accomplished as a businesswoman, entrepreneur, you'd won some awards and so forth. And then you decided, I'm going to enter politics. W what was behind that decision? Because it seemed like you had some good things going on as well, but you said, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to go in this direction now. Yeah. So at the time that I entered into politics, I was actually running Canada's first national epidemiology study on neurological conditions. And we were looking at the scope, impact, health services, and risk factors for, for 14 priority conditions, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, epilepsy, you name it, across the age continuum. And what we were finding, what we there was hundreds of researchers across the country, but we also married into that research the lived experience, people who had neurological conditions and their caregivers. And what we were finding was that people had to leave their home province actually move out of their province because one drug wasn't covered under one formulary or another, or they had to get a divorce 
because their income was just just high enough that certain services weren't covered. And I thought, you know, if I get into politics, I could perhaps create the equity that is required for people to be able to live lives without having to make such painful decisions. And that was, I think, that impetus to to get involved, you know, taking my background in business and research and and putting it together with a political lens, with a policy perspective to, to help people. Okay, so you get into office, 2015, majority victory uh, for Prime yes. Minister Justin Trudeau. You're part of this very, uh, a lot of people celebrating that and the, you know, the because it's 2015 line that Justin Trudeau said when uh, we all remember him standing in front of Rideau Hall after the cabinet being sworn in and so forth. And that that seemed like a very optimistic time. At, at that point, shortly after the victory, were you optimistic that the things that you've just said now, that you were going to be able to uh, play a major role in, in bringing, apart, uh, bringing about those goals? You know, Anthony, I might sound really jaded, but right from the beginning, I started to see sort of flaws in what I envisioned or what I was sold as a new government, government doing things differently, bold, transformative, sunny ways. Um, you know, they add women change politics and diversity is our strength was our was our mantras. And even in that moment when, you know, the because 2015, there was an opportunity to talk about things differently, even during that moment to say, you know, it's not just because it's 2015, it's because we have really great candidates. And the second thing was at that moment, the Liberal Party put out a message that said that this cabinet is the face of Canada. And I looked at it and I thought, well, there's a lot of races, people's backgrounds that are missing from those, you know, 30 something people that were from cabinet. So it, it can't possibly just be the face of Canada. And, and most importantly, there was no black representation. So how is that the face of Canada? And it might seem like it's something small, but for me, standing there and watching that, you know, it's 2015 and this is the face of Canada, I thought, no, I need to say something. And I, I, I said something publicly about it at the time. And I realized at that moment, or somebody told me later on that that was the first strike that I had against me. Um, I wasn't supposed to be speaking out. I wasn't supposed to talk about these things, but I started to see that right from the beginning. And, and did somebody come back to you, like from the PMO or somewhere in the party apparatus saying, uh, Selena, we heard you say this thing. Can we have a word yes. with you? Yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, the more I started speaking up about things, the more it was brought to my attention that I needed to figure out what kind of liberal I wanted to be. The, the, and, one thing, the one thing I'd, I'd credit the Prime Minister for in 2015 is there were a lot of impressive people who, who quit their day jobs or paused their day jobs to go and run uh, for politics. And, and, you know, you can be cynical and there's a lot of staffers who say, OK, this is just a gateway to get into office and so forth. But, you no, know, 2015, there was a slate of, 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 of all of you who were very credentialed people uh, who ran for office. Sure. And as you said, you were doing some really impressive research at the time. And I remember reading about all the different profiles of people. And, and to your point about uh, there being no black cabinet ministers, uh, one liberal MP in the Montreal area, Emmanuel de Borg, I read his resume and I'm like, this guy is like yeah. super hyper accomplished. And I think yeah. most Canadians still have not. In fact, I, I must confess, I'm not even sure. I assume he ran for re-election in 2019. I don't even know the answer to that question. And I remember saying, this is kind of an amazing resume. Uh, maybe yeah. he doesn't do retail politics or whatever, but I thought this guy's like, this guy's like Bill Morneau level in terms of his field and so forth. I think most Canadians have never heard of him before. And I always thought that was kind of odd. Like there were people who were just not a part of the decision-making table. 
Yes. And, and you know what? Uh, Emmanuel DeBoer, who, who was reelected, uh, was really part of the infrastructure that helped solidify some of the policy um, policy uh, perspectives in that campaign. And so, you know, not seeing him named in cabinet, I, I he was one of the first calls I made after that, this is the face of Canada. And I didn't really know him, but I, I read his me- resume as well. And I, I apologize. I just said, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. Um, you should be there. And, and, and again, from a perspective of this is a highly qualified, if it's just based on merit, it's a highly qualified individual who should have been there. Granted, he wasn't. And, and I think the point is, is that if you have that self-awareness enough to know that as a party and the people that are around you should be able to say, no, we probably shouldn't say that this is the face of Canada because it's not. Um, and we should we should try, therefore, to understand and to make things a little bit more equitable. But it also, f- from a sort of political strategy perspective, whether it was true or not, didn't it work? I mean, isn't that the narrative across the world that Justin Trudeau is is sort of the inclusion, the diversity prime minister, and all oh, those conservatives, they're just all against that and so forth. He gets reelected. Uh, as we speak mm-hmm. right now, the polls suggest that he would probably be reelected, uh, not just with a minority, but with a majority government. So, yep. you know, maybe uh, not entirely accurate, but as as narrative, as sell, it's, it's, it's working out for them. And that, I think that's the challenge, though. The, the challenge isn't just to sell rhetoric. That is not the job of our democracy of a G7 country. It's not just to sell rhetoric. It should be to create policy that is going to help people. And at the end of the day, you know, like you said, a lot of really good people quit their jobs to, to get there and to be a part of that infrastructure. And not only were they, they selling a, a rhetoric around feminism and diversity, they also had a majority government. There were things that that were promised in that campaign that could have been done and weren't. And we we cannot continue to just sell rhetoric and call it democracy. That's that's not what this should be about. It should be about saying, look, um, we want to change the way that we vote. We promise that we have a majority government. Let's make it happen. We know that mandatory minimums are unconstitutional. They don't make Canadians any more or less safe, but they disproportionately impact negatively Black and Indigenous people. Let's repeal them. The rhetoric is not leadership. And let's unpack some of that. Uh, You're referencing electoral reform there. I mean, personally, in my writing, my views, I did not support that campaign promise, but I appreciate that Trudeau Mm -hmm. made it uh, quite emphatically and many times, and, and then he got the majority mandate. And I think that was Probably for a lot of people, a lot of people are very passionate about that. And on the left, I know yes. Jack Layton was talking about that for years. So people wanted to see it happen. Why did it not happen? Why did Trudeau uh, abandon something that I think he's done things that he did not have a mandate for? This is a thing. As much as I don't support that policy, he had a mandate for that. Right. And I don't really support it either. Right? Let's just be clear. Um, but when when we talk about electoral reform and and when we talk about something that I really did support, which is uh, the repeal of mandatory minimums, uh, that decision, in, in my opinion, and I, I really don't say things that I don't have a lot of evidence on, um, 
was made because it was politically expedient. Hmm. You know, can can I get reelected? Can we hold a majority? Can we still retain the power that we have if we don't do some of these things? And I think instead of doing what they had a mandate to do, what they promised Canadians to do, what was right by many Canadians or what would have been right, they thought, well, how will this poll? How will I get reelected? Is this going to work out in my favor? And if the answer was no, then it wasn't done. And that... So that's unfortunate. I mean, is some of it just that while there were some highly credentialed people at the cabinet table, the prime minister himself and and the people around him, I know they had experience, I guess, working in Ontario government with Dalton McGuinty, but these were people who perhaps just, just you know, made some grandiose promises and claims and government doesn't always work that way. So they had a problem on that. What's that term that Dominic Barton did the, did the press conference, did the sort of conferences on the deliverology? They had a problem with the deliverology of it. Well, you know what? I... Again, we we could give the the uh, government of the day, especially in the forty second Parliament, um, as much sort of pass as we want. But again, if these things were fundamental to the government and fundamental to the Prime Minister, they would have been done. I I I, I think the buck stops with him. He is the elected official, irrespective of who is around him in terms of PMO. The buck stops with him. Uh, in terms of making those decisions. And quite frankly, I, I don't think he had or has the leadership capacity to to do to have done so. What is fundamental to Justin Trudeau? I've noticed that he used to say women's issues when he did his statements about any sort of uh, debate or press conference, he'd bring women's issues to the fore. And he talked about that quite a lot for quite a few years. Now the phrase green usually comes first. We're going to make a Canada that is greener. And then he goes on fair and whatever the phrases are, but greener is usually the first one. What are those the things that is core to him? I don't even know if it's core, if you're able to flip flop on, you know, the issue of the day, you know, if, if, if the issue of, if the issue is, you know, feminism, one minute, green, the next, all of those are related to a foundational principle of equity. We know that people are who are dis- disproportionately impacted by, by, you know, a pandemic, by climate change, by inequality are often women, children, racialized individuals, people with disabilities, uh, different sexual orientation. If his baseline principles are about equity, he would be speaking to that all the time. He wouldn't just jump back and forth related to what is the flavor of the day. And again, I'm going to use the word performative. That is what happens when somebody does not have the leadership capacity to be grounded in something that will carry them forward no matter what. One thing that I always remember Jason Kenney saying a year or two ago, and he got in big trouble for it, is he said that Justin Trudeau was never considered the brightest bulb in Parliament when he was an MP, said something along those lines. You know, and it's true, before he became Liberal leader, he never actually introduced any private members' bills. He never gave any of those, you know, great speeches one gives at a security conference or a think tank or or what have you. And he didn't serve, I, I think he was the critic for sport or something under, I guess, Bob Ray's brief leadership. Other than that, he didn't really serve in any sort of weighty critic positions. And I guess, you know, that drives me to think, well, it drives me to think, how did he become, you know, Prime Minister in the first place? But I guess, you know, what are those core issues that were driving him in, in advance of that? What was the kind of, uh, whatever term you want to use, po- political perspective, foundational principles, ideology, what what was brought to the table? What did you feel was, 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 the, was the thing that brought all the candidates together 
in 2015? Well, I mean, we were sold a really good bag of goods around, you know, doing politics differently. And I really think for me, anyhow, that was a really strong message. Can Canadians were tired of Harper, whether that's true or not. It clearly was with a, a majority mandate. We wanted to do politics differently. We were going to be bold and transformative. It seemed like something where I could use my skill set to be able to influence and transform government and to transform the outcomes of government. And when you think about this, Anthony, I want you to think about when we introduced those small business tax credits or tax changes and the absolute fiasco that was. You know, right. Bill Morneau ended up having to backpedal on some of it. He had to change it around. You have 180 plus bright individuals around it in, in your caucus and you introduce those kinds of tax changes. I want I want you to really think do you think that those tax changes actually went through caucus with all of those business entrepreneurs, all of those people in a way that was deliberate and intentional? I don't think hmm. so. And, and I could tell you that it wasn't. So when, when we talk about, you know, Kenny saying that he's not the brightest bulb, I'm not sure if it's the brightest bulb because I do think he's, he's smart. I don't think that he has the, capa- the leadership capacity to be able to say, I am not the smartest guy in the room. And therefore, I'm going to leverage other people that are with that are with me. So that's that's a leadership skill. That's a emotional intelligence skill. That is the the capacity to have self awareness. And in my opinion, that is lacking. And you know, people might listen to this and say, "Oh my God, she spent so much time criticizing him." He is the leader of a G7 country. He is not the barista at the the coffee shop. He is the leader of a G7 country. So you better believe I'm going to push him to have some self-awareness to create some policy that is going to actually help people. Speaking about using your skill set then, you were, after getting in, after winning in 2015, uh, you became a parliamentary secretary on uh, on two different portfolios. What, what did you think that experience would be going into it? And what did it prove to be? <laughs> uh, so the first one was, uh, the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. I went in and the first meeting I had with the prime minister was in December, 2015. And I said to him, let me be clear on a couple of things. I don't want to be appointed to your, to, uh, to have this appointment to fill any racial or gender gaps. I am, I have business background. I have research background. I'm smart. And therefore I would like to be leveraged for that capacity. Um, that was not the case. I developed a framework. I developed um, milestones, initiatives that I wanted to complete, um, objectives that were in line with the principles of the government. Uh, and none of those were taken into account. And in fact, the three times that I was tagged to represent the prime minister at an international at international events, they were all black focused. I was told I was not to speak uh, in the House of Commons to answer questions uh, during question period that were directed to the prime minister or any questions related to that portfolio in general. Um, there was there was a lot of tape over my mouth and uh, handcuffs on my wrists. And so that position was one that I was more than willing to to let go of. So he only wanted you or the prime minister's office only wanted you to go to events and speak at things that were directly sort of black community occasions and activities. Focus, yes. And it wow. wasn't, I wasn't speaking at anything. I was just showing up. 
I did not have, uh, it's aside from uh, the, the trip that I took to Ghana, which was in 2016, at the beginning of 2016, which I believe because they knew they were switching me to international development, um, I was sent there. But the other two events, there were no meetings, there were no outside meetings other than attending the state visit to Washington, in which I was not invited to the state dinner or any other meetings, just the meeting with the president on the South Lawn and the opening of the African-American Museum in Washington. Again, no other meetings tied to that itinerary. It was a fly down, sit in the seat, get up, fly home. So you said to him in December 2015, I don't want to be a token, basically. And they said, yes. okay, we still want you in this role. And then they proceeded yes. to, to do just that? And then they proceeded to do just that. Exactly. And you, I understand you called him on it. I called him on it a few times. Yes, uh, it, it, it is the most embarrassingly hurtful feeling to know that you are as, as skilled, uh, you're smart, you're able to think strategically, and to then be diminished to a sitting bobblehead and at, at taxpayers expense. And so the message I sent was this job isn't worth the $16,000 extra that you're paying me get rid of it. And in fact, uh, after I left the position, it wasn't filled until, I mean, a couple of weeks ago when uh, Greg Fergus was appointed as his parliamentary secretary. Now let's move forward a good few months here. The the, the thing that, uh, you know, is kind of the main meat and potatoes, the main drama of your book, and of course your story, uh, that very, very vibrant confrontation that you and the prime minister had, where you finally, well, you called him out on all of this, but you explained it had gotten to a point where you had to say, sorry, I'm going to have to sit as an independent and I'm not going to run again as a liberal. Right. Yeah. You know, in as much as I had many examples, so 2016 was the year I was tokenized. Um, I could, I could sum them up. 2017, I was excluded from every single conversation re related to domestic investments in black communities. I was not invited to a single meeting um, related to the 2018 budget or to the recognition of the UN decade for people of African descent. Of course, in 2018, everybody knows I was gaslit um, for talking about racism. Again, my party did not step in to offer any assistance. And so by 2019, I, I, you know, you would think that I wasn't naive about the ways of the prime minister or the PMO. Um, and I called as a courtesy call to let them know that I wasn't going to be running again. Clearly, I wasn't fitting into a liberal framework. Um, so I thought, you know, let me just leave kind of quietly. I got on the phone and, you know, he starts off by saying that I can't make an announcement that I'm, I'm leaving because he cannot have two powerful women of color leave on the same day. Jody Wilson-Rainbolt resigned that same day. And I thought, is he kidding? <laughs> um, and then he went on to say that, you know, I didn't appreciate him. Um, I didn't, I, I keep, you know, people keep talking to him about his privilege, which I, I never did in that phone call, literally just said, I'm going to announce that I'm not running again. Um, and then this, this, you know, outpouring of, uh, of his resentment to that came out and yeah, I, I actually thought that Anthony, during that call, he was going to say, Selena, thank you for the work that you've done. I wish I could convince you to make a different decision. 
I wish that you would stay. None of that. No gratitude. I was, it was the most, it was one of the most hurtful things. And I, I say that because, you know, people should, you know, I'm sure most people would say, Selena, you know, just get over it. But it was, it was hurtful. You work for years. You're talking about issues that normally are not spoken up about. I'm speaking up about issues. Clearly the liberals are getting a following in, you know, the conversations that I'm having, because I'm gaining a following. You're th I'm thinking that this is beneficial. They're still not, they're helping me. And then I get, you should be grateful to me as if I didn't work for four years. And that was, I think, the worst part of the, the four years that I was there. What happened then with you and your colleagues in caucus and the other cabinet members? Uh, did they, how many people reached out to you and, and, and said, you know, we acknowledge your work and we're sorry to see you go? How many sort of, okay, the PMO is not crazy about her right now. Let's kind of give her the cold shoulder, that sort of thing. How, how did that equation balance out? Um, so, you know what? I actually kept that really quiet. Nobody knew anything about the phone call. Nobody knew about my decision to leave. The first the first call was made to the whip and to the, the to the prime minister. So I, I kept that quiet. And most of my colleagues didn't know anything. And I was very clear to say that my issues for leaving were not the same as Jody Wilson-Raybould's. Mm -hmm. the, the, the tipping point for me, Anthony, was when um, when it did get mi mixed up with Jody Wilson-Raybould was when, you know, there were these anonymous messages um, and reports that said, you know, Jody wasn't a team player. She was, you know, whatever. I found it very interesting that our party had spent so much time being feminist, so much time talking about believe her. We had just come through a Me Too movement, right? believe her, believe women when they say they're bullied and harassed. And I found it interesting that, you know, they could believe her when it was convenient and leave her when it was not. And I speak about, you know, my you know, principles and values that drives me, my values of and the things that I stand for. When I say that I'm a, I'm a feminist, I, I believe in intersectional feminism it is a foundational principle of mine. And when I saw that I was part of a party that claimed to be feminist, but didn't actually practice it, that is when, when things were exposed. That's when I spoke up about what was happening. And that's when I chose to then sit as an independent. My guest today is Selena Cesar Chavan, author of the newly released book, Can You Hear Me Now? Uh, Selena, you know, really interesting uh, stuff that brings us here to, I guess, March 2019, when you made that decision to run as an independent, and then, uh, sorry, not to run, but to, to stay as an independent up until the next election. There's about six months uh, yes. from March until that election, and a lot of things happening that time, including during that election, suddenly news drops one night. Justin Trudeau, look at this picture. Here he is in blackface, not as a 14-year-old when people do really stupid things, or an 18-year-old, or 28-year-old, one picture, two picture, three pictures. How many prime ministers? Uh, I don't know, not exactly sure, maybe three rounding up. Who knows? What did you think about during that whole affair as really the world was weighing in on that? Yeah, you know, when I saw it, I, I shouldn't have been surprised. Um, I still was I still was surprised. Um, again, he was an adult and he's also the leader of a G7 country. However, my thoughts weren't directly to Justin Trudeau. As I, as I said, 
I don't think he has the self-awareness to actually figure that out and the impact of that. So I actually was thinking about my community, the Black community in particular, and to individuals who are allies who are going to be completely devastated by this, this news. And so, <laughs> Anthony, you know, I sent a letter to PMO and I said, um, that I said, you cannot just, you cannot have the prime minister just apologize for this. That would be, that, that is not the way to go. What he needs to do is not only apologize, but do what you do with children. Say, what did you learn and how are you going to make this better? So he was in Manitoba at the Museum of Human Rights at the time. I said in the, in the email, what you can do is have the prime minister say what he's learned meaning talk about the fact that minstrel shows were rampant in the prairies in Canada hmm. and start that learning moment that everybody was like, this is a learning moment for everybody. No, start that learning moment for Canadians who don't know, including the prime minister. Start there. Talk to Canadians about how, how prominent they were. Talk to Canadians about how they dehumanize Black bodies by doing that. And then say what you are going to do to fix it. Hold yourself accountable for your actions. He did neither of those. And in again, naively enough, thought that maybe this was the turning point. Maybe this was the moment where he would show his medal. And it did not happen. This is one of those issues. I think it frustrated so many people who, who yes, thought it was a bad thing to do. But also, it frustrated them that they knew if it had been them they would be out of a job for it. They would be toast. Now, Justin yes. Trudeau doesn't answer to anyone except the voters who, who chose to reelect him. And there was a major frustration around that. And I yes. guess that brings us into, and, and in your book and, and things you've advocated for, issues around you know gender issues and, and race issues and so forth. There's a lot of, I guess I'll just say cancel culture around the periphery in terms of you know, if people say the wrong things, if they misstep in that, I mean, those are landmines. They're walking on eggshells and so forth. What does it mean that that other people certainly would have been persona non grata after that had happened? Is is it right for that? Was it if Justin Trudeau had just said I did something really bad, and we, well, he did say that part, but then also went on to say the the, the teachable stuff, as you said, does that it doesn't make the original thing okay, of course, but is that how society should be heading? Should people be be losing everything because of these really dumb juvenile things they do? Well, he didn't lose everything. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 other people as well. I mean, taking right, us from the no. Trudeau conversation so, to I know right. these these broader issues that that I know you also speak about. Right. So yeah. So I actually had a, a Instagram conversation about this within the last twenty four hours, and said, no, I, I certainly don't believe that that people should lose everything for the mistakes that they made. I mean, read my book. I I right. give a whole lifetime of mistakes in my books, things I feel guilty about, shameful, hurt about. I should have been canceled a long time ago. <laughs> I, 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 but I think we should enter these things with a degree of grace and empathy. And I always operate from that space. And hence the reason sending that note to PMO, irrespective of all the stuff I'd been through the years before, still saying, look, your community needs you to understand how this works. I, I, I want to take a moment, though, to talk about the other side of cancel culture. When we talk about, you know, uh, Black history or Indigenous history, you know, um, uh, when, when we think about how 
certain cultures have been canceled, we do need to talk residential schools, erasing, you know, indigenous culture from, from indigenous communities. The, the fact that our textbooks have very little about the contribution of black communities to this country. I think when we, when we, if we're not having a comprehensive conversation about cancel culture in a way that's empathetic, in a way that we could say, how do we correct this? How do we do this right? How do we hold people to account without destroying them completely? I think that's a different conversation to be having. Um, well, and I've never really heard the term that. used that way before. So so you're saying cancel culture is, is a bigger thing than usually it's lamented that yeah. sort of conservatives or politically incorrect people, you know, say something, okay, you said the homophobic joke, you know, you probably shouldn't say that, but, you know, guy doesn't need to lose everything for it kind of thing. But more that there's there's a, a much broader spectrum of cancel culture going on? There, there's a much broader spectrum. And we're we're focusing in on these these issues that I'm sure if everybody were to record their actions on a daily basis, we would all be canceled. <laughs> like that's the, that's the common denominator. There is, there is broader issues here. And I, I don't really get into these debates about cancel culture because clearly it works for some and it doesn't work for others. And some people are protected and some it's, it's, it's a nonsense game. It's a, you, you can't win in this game. Sure. Let's have a more broader, a, adult conversation about this and and not do we really need to demolish people's careers well, that the was same- the whole that was the whole blackface photos though it was obviously that somebody had dug all of this up got it to media and i guess what was it time magazine or whatnot was the one who first posted it and so forth and it's the same thing whether it's prime minister or uh whoever you know i'm, I'm sure when you ran for office the the, the local yeah. conservative campaigns oh we're gonna go back on our facebook and we're gonna see if she said this rude word or that rude word i run for office they're gonna do the same for me they go back on all your columns and so forth i mean that's just kind of the game and it kind of it gets like I feel like it gets weaker sauce more and more. It's now like things people, because, you know, now we're at the age where people um, had Facebook and Twitter when they were like 14 and so forth, because it's been around <laughs> for 10 years. So we can get those things they said there. And people, and now we have um, the young lady, uh, she's the editor of, what was it, Teen Vogue? She was a young black lady and she made some inappropriate remarks when she was a teenager. I guess she'd already apologized for them. And I just look at this, I go, good grief. Like, you know, everybody's dropping like flies over this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is that what we want though? And it gets to goes back to that conversation about empathy. Like, do we, do we, can we not see ourselves in making these mistakes? Can we not see ourselves in possibly doing something that was dumb, you know? Um, and, and again, I, I guess, I think I'm pretty sure that this is why I sent that note to the prime minister. Look, I'm not going to further indict you, nor do I need to accept your apology. I mean, I don't have to do either of those, but what needs to happen is that you need to, hold yourself accountable. That is, it's it's not, should he be canceled? Should he be the next prime minister? Should he not? That's not the question. The question is, again, you are the leader of a G7 country. Can you use this moment to do something bigger than just say, I'm sorry? The, and and for, for him not to do that says to me that you lack the self-awareness, you lack the leadership capacity to be able to do something and that doesn't sit well with me. The bigger question on that front is, should you still lead? And my answer to that is, is no. I want, I, go back, <laughs> I want to go back to, to last summer. And I know you've, you've written about this a lot. You've talked about it a lot where there were obviously a lot of conversations 
uh, about yeah. race going on, the killing of George Floyd, which obviously became much bigger than just that one uh, right. one incident, became a flashpoint for so much more. And, and there were many things going on. I guess my, my way into this, although let's talk about, you know, all, all different angles of it, but when we talk about having empathy and so forth, well, there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cancel going on. There's a lot of eggshells. I still remember Stockwell Day going on CBC and there was a panel conversation. I guess he was regularly on this panel and they said, is the RCMP systemically racist? And I guess most panelists said yes. Stockwell Day said no. And then he's off CBC permanently, I guess. And then he lost a board of directorship or something like that. I'm, I'm sure he's you know, got a lot of money. I'm not feeling sorry for the guy in that regard. But still, as someone who's who's out and about in, in you know the public airwaves, I go on radio and television, that whole thing, it made me kind of like what what you know what is going on here we're not allowed to talk about you know this or that i mean he didn't do something outrageously offensive or or, or maybe you know you think he did I, what are your thoughts on i guess specifically that incident but 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 how that relates to the macro how that relates to us actually being able to honestly have these conversations well that's that's the key word honestly have these conversations so i mean i think there's a certain degree of responsibility that goes when you have a certain degree of privilege and power and if you're going to use that privilege and power to further uh, create inequity within a system, then do you really need it? <laughs> like, you know, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. You have the capacity to be on the airwaves to use your power and your privilege to create something that is right, that is meaningful, and you're dismissing it. Well, they asked him a uh, yes or no I, question. RCMP systemically racist. And he, he went for the no kind of thing. It's like, well, don't ask him the question if you're going to can the guy based on, you know, right, giving right, one right. or two of the, the answers kind of thing. Right. Well, I mean, I my answer to that would based on a number of different testimony, a number of different incidents that have come forward is is yes, sexism and racism exist. In that institution, I cannot speak to 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 Stockwell Day and you know him s believing the the opposite to that. Um, and again, I I believe that when you have that power and that privilege to to investigate something and look into it to make it right or to hopefully change the tide, that you would do that. How do we then approach those conversations? without people being having so many kind of filters and, and again, yeah. walking on eggshells that they go, yeah, you know what, I, I, I don't want to. I, I just don't want to. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to let, I, ju I just want to ghost away from it because I don't know what's going to happen to me kind of thing. Yeah, well, we need to realize that people are going to, in this work, so I, I do this, as I said, I do this work with Queens. And one of the things that I say is we are going to make mistakes in this work. It is a thankless job. When we're talking about pushing for equity, we're going to make mistakes. I may may have made, you know, ten to fifteen in the last forty five minutes that somebody will call me out on. Right. You know, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. And so, I, again, I, I I think it boils down to just having that understanding that we're going. If we are striving towards this, if we have the intention is to strive towards equity, and we're acting on that in good faith there are chances that we're going to make some mistakes. Again, does that mean that people need to be crucified at the stake? I don't think so. I, I actually, I really don't. Otherwise I would have said, burn him at the stake, leave the prime minister. Like I would have come out swinging. Right. I didn't really say anything um, 
publicly during that time, because I knew the influence that that could have. I really wanted the prime minister to make that that moment something real for communities. And I know you're talking about Stockwell Day here. I don't really have an opinion one way or another. I just don't think that people should should have to lose their everything because of a comment that they made again. If people read my book, they would say Selena should have been canceled a long time ago. She should have never been in politics, let alone the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. You know, people make mistakes. Good grief. Get over it. And speaking of the book, you can find Selena Cesar Chavan's new book, Can You Hear Me Now? It's available now and online everywhere and in, in bookstores. Selena, uh, b- before we go here, well, where do we go now in terms of these conversations, in terms yeah. of the prime minister getting getting more honest about these things that you've critiqued him for maybe being a little bit of a phony on? How do how do we have these conversations where where people are walking on eggshells over some people? You know, I don't know about that. I'm nervous about it. Other people, you know, very passionate in their activism for it. How do people sort of yeah. come together and, and how do you get that? That, that productive path forward? Because there's obviously a lot of people sometimes quite literally out in the streets at, at loggerheads with each other these days. Yeah, you know what? Um, Robert Livingston, who's a, a professor at Harvard Kennedy School, put out a report in September of 2020. And I hate to make this academic, but it really boils down to something quite simple um, that, that looked at how to create racial equity and just racial equity in the workplace, right? And he said, you know, we have to understand, he uses a, a program called the PRESS model, P-R-E-S-S. The P is understanding the problem. The R is understanding the root of the problem. Um, I'll skip the E for a second. The first S is putting together a strategy. And the second S is saying, you know, put some sacrifice into it. Of course, there's going to be resources. The middle of that, the E on that is empathy. And again, it seems really simple and really intuitive, um, but we cannot expect to come together on an issue as divisive as uh, racial inequity is if we continue to say, well, it's them and us. What, you know, it's, it's us and them. Well, I don't see anything that they have that I have. What The thing that is common to all of us is our capacity to be empathetic. So I'm, I'm actually, Anthony, looking to, to, to change my, my, to study my, my PhD thesis on equity and, and uh, empathy, because I think it is so fundamentally critical um, to how we move forward, how we think about equity in a different way. And it is common to everybody. And it's, again, it's quite simple, but if we really think about putting ourselves in each other's shoes, just even for a moment, I think we could do a lot, a lot of good. To what degree is there an agree to disagree kind of component, but still forging ahead? For instance, you yes. know, when I see people protesting in the streets uh, about their very earnestly felt experiences and emotions about injustice and so forth, I'm, I have no problem with that. I support them. I, you know, I want, right. I want good things for them. But I also, knowing the sort of specific uh, requests of Black Lives Matter as a formal organization and around you know, defunding the police and so forth, those requests they've made, I do not support those requests. So I support a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the broader sort of issues and passions behind it, but there's also some of the more organized stuff that that, that I don't support. But I don't want that to mean then, you know, baby out with the bathwater, let's just not talk about these things. Right. And that that's the challenge, right? So how do you say I support, but I don't support this? And because there isn't that capacity to say, look, we're going to agree to disagree. And if we get to a point where we cannot say that, Anthony, we are doomed. 
because we need to have all of those conversations at the table to put forward good policy, to put forward good legislation, or to have critically thinking people in conversations. So we should be able to do that. And again, we've come through an era of of, of hyperpolarization in our political world that I think has spilled over into our everyday practices. Right. And we need to realign that back. That needs to come back. And it needs to come back in a way that everybody sees themselves as part of a solution as opposed to us versus them anymore. Selena Cesar Chavan, businesswoman, entrepreneur, liberal MP from 2015 2019, author of the new book, Can You Hear Me Now? Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Selena. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you to your listeners as well. Full Comment with Anthony Fury is a post-media podcast. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Thanks to our guest, author and former MP, Selena Caesar-Siobhan. The host is Anthony Fury. Thanks for listening.